Thank you, Derek, for the reading of our passage today from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. But it is about John. I can see how that's easily, easily gets confusing. And then see how we spent over a year in the Gospel of John. That was kind of automatic as well. Some time ago, uh, I was doing my devotions and in Matthew chapter 3, and I came across this passage having to do with John the Baptist and uh, this sermon. And it just, Holy Spirit just kind of got all over me. And I began to dig into it and to see uh, uh, things that I hadn't seen at a cursory reading. You know how that is. We can just dig into the Word. And the Holy Spirit was just filling me, just, just oh, my overflowing with uh, uh, insights and the things that He wanted me to know. Later, Valeria and I got together, and we sometimes talk about how our, our quiet time, our devotional time went, and I was telling her about it, and, and it must have been kind of bubbling over there on her too, and she said, well, I guess we're going to hear this in a sermon, aren't we? And I said, well, <laughs> no, it'll take more than one to do with all this. <laughs> so I just want to begin to share with you a little bit, go on a journey with me into the life and ministry of a very, very unique character, uh, John the Baptist is the hinge where the Old Testament begins to close shut and the New Testament is open. Prophecies about the Messiah have been delivered and here they're being, beginning to be fulfilled. Uh, outside of Jesus Christ, he is the most significant theological person that you're going to find in the, in the Gospels. And his, his preaching, the message that he brought, and the power with which he brought it was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it had been 400 years, four centuries of silence where God had not spoken. God had not raised up a prophet to bring a word, thus saith the Lord. Those words had not been heard for 400 years until that voice began crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And that was John the Baptist. He preached a message that summed up the message of all of the prophets. And that message was repentance. A change of heart, a change of mind that changed action as well. And he expected to see that change as well. Jesus spoke of John in Matthew 11 this way. He said, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Whew. I mean, that's, you need to pause right there. <laughs> Wouldn't you love that on your resume? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said of all those born of women, none have been greater than this man. The last and greatest of all of the prophets, crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. And people came from all over. They, they came from Jerusalem. They came from up in Galilee. They came from the far side of Jordan, which was another country and still is today. So they, they came not just some miles, but they walked over county lines and state lines and country lines in order to hear this message. And what he was talking about, his sermons, they cut deep. They just did away with all of the frivolity. Did away with all of the pretense. And cut right deep to the depths of man's depravity. And his need 
to turn away from his sinful way of doing things and to turn back to Almighty God. And it had such power. You know, though, of all the sermons that he preached, we really only have one recorded. And I'm sure not all of it. But here in Matthew chapter 3, and also in Luke chapter 3, we have this one sermon remembered. And it's, they're identical in both of those places. Luke gives a few more details about what John was looking for when it came to repentance, and we'll get to that a little later. But they're identical in their scope. So I want us to look at just this verse 7. As he begins his sermon. What a way to begin. (laughs) Verse 7 he says, But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Let me pause a minute and say, the word to there is the word epi. And it really carries the weight more of for than just coming to see, but for to participate in. Coming for His baptism. He said to them, Brood of vipers! Who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Boy, I like that for an invitation. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank You for the ministry and gift that John the Baptist was and continues to be today. Many, many churches all over our world begin their new year right here preaching about John the Baptist coming and the message that he brings. So as we move into this new year, let us hear fresh and anew the message from heaven through the voice of John to each and every one of our hearts, to get real, to get earnest, to come clean before You. Holy Spirit, in the name of the risen Lord Jesus, do we pray. Amen. Everything about this man was amazing and just captured your attention. Uh, He... He had been in the wilderness, and until you've gone there, you have no idea what that would be like. We really don't have a place in the United States that's like that. Uh, some of the deserts in the southwest would come close. But he, he lived there. He was born to be a priest. He, his family, through Zechariah, he was born into the priestly clan. And he was born to be a priest, but he was called to be a prophet. And early on in his life, God says, you just need to get away. You need to get away from the religious leaders because I'm calling you to be an entirely different kind of religious leader. And so he spent the majority of his life out in the wilderness. It says that that he appeared wearing a cloak of camel's hair with a leather belt. Just as drab, but as durable as the wilderness in which he lived. And that his diet subsisted of of honey and wild locust. I don't think I could ever be a prophet. Don't know if I could handle that part. But even how he dressed and what he ate was specifically designed by God to be a contrast to the religious leaders of the day. 
The religious leaders of the day were, were very prominent. They were usually well taken care of. They took care of themselves real well, indeed. And, and they spoke always quoting rabbis before them. And here along came John, and then even more so Jesus later, but along came John with a fresh message. But not just fresh. In your face. Powerful. And demanding that a relationship with God transforms your life. And if you're living no different from the lost people round about you, something is seriously wrong. That was the, the, the power and the in-your-face direction of John's delivery. He was a startling figure. And when he preached, he was one of those who bellowed. I mean, he didn't need one of these things. <clears throat> he echoed through the canyons of the Jordan River Valley. Let's look at his preaching. As I said, Matthew records this as one message. Luke records it again in Luke chapter 3. And here it is. You can sum it up in a few words. It was a call to repentance, an interchange of mind and heart that was then symbolized by baptism and then exemplified by a changed lifestyle. And the immediate effect of John's preaching was dramatic. People came out of the woodwork. People came from everywhere to hear this man. Even though he was abrasive, even though his message was in your face, even though he, he questioned the religious authorities that were in place, folks were drawn to him. And among those who were drawn to him were the very religious leaders of the day. Now, specifically mentioned in Matthew and in Luke are, are four. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the priests. Now, let me, let me break that down just a little bit. Uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees were two religious sects. And they were as different as night and day. And not only were they different, they, they regularly uh, <coughs> opposed one another. The Pharisees were very ritualistic. And following the rituals, following the forms, was very important to them. The Sadducees were very rationalistic. Hey, pragmatic. Whatever it takes, that's what we do. Uh, the Pharisees were separatist. Keep, keep away from those that, that don't keep all the law. The Sadducees was, look, hey, we got to work with these people. We got to collaborate. We got to corroborate with one another. The, the Pharisees were, were commoners. They usually had a trade. Whereas the Sadducees were the aristocrats, the old money, the blue bloods, if you please. Now, from these two religious sects or ways of thinking, they both had representatives among the scribes and the priests. Now let me differentiate between these. Scribes were those who oftentimes were also referred to as lawyers, though not the way we think of lawyers. Uh, they were those who were students of the ancient laws. And they would often make themselves available 
in, in local towns, at the synagogues, or in Jerusalem, in and around the temple. And if you had a question about the law, if you had a question about something you'd read in the Bible, then you would go to one of the local scribes, and they were the authority. And they would interpret that Scripture passage or interpret that law for you. That's the scribes. But now you've got to understand that that scribe happened to be a Pharisee. He would interpret that law one way. And if he happened to be a Sadducee, he would interpret the law a little differently. So those were the scribes. They were the interpreters of the law. They worked with the common people. And then there were the priests. And again... The priests were made up of people who come from the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees and, and a few other of the minor sects. And they led the worship in the temple. All right. So, what you see are the four groups that really impacted the thinking and the religious life of the people there in Jesus' day. Now, it says they were, these are the ones who were, were coming to them. Uh, they, they were coming for baptism. Like I said, that word that you see is to in your Bible is actually epi, and it means toward or, or with a purpose or, or to do something. Uh, if I'm doing something for you, all right, it, it, there's a purpose there. There's action that is implied in the word. So the question actually came to me is why were these self righteous Pharisees and the great collaborator Sadducees, why were they seeking? Baptism by John. I mean, they would have thought that they were already in the kingdom of God because of their ancestry. But they recognized something about John. Many people believed that John was a prophet. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these priests and these scribes, listening to him preach and hearing about him, they said, you know, he may very well be. This may very well be the first prophet that we have had in four centuries. We need to go check this out. So it's only, only reasonable that these people who really held religious control would want to come and see what this firebrand, what this rogue out here in the wilderness was preaching and why he had such incredible power over all of the people. But they weren't coming to hear a message that might change their heart. They were coming to find what's wrong with him or how can we use him for our benefit. If he was indeed a prophet, then maybe they could align themselves with him and then, then his following would become their following. Maybe they, they were looking for the possibility to gain his approval, and if they had his approval, then there was one more rubber stamp on their resume to increase their power and their influence. And maybe if they went through one more ritual, and they had all kinds of rituals, one more ritual of this crazy baptizing in the Jordan, that would authenticate us to be aligned enough with this prophet, again, to use that to our advantage. I don't know if any of that is absolutely right. That's, so, that's speculation. But here's what I do know. John saw right through them. And he saw that their motives were wrong and wicked. 
They were not seeking to know God's truth. They were not seeking for God to work in their lives. They were too content to repent. We let that settle in on top of you there for a moment. They were too content to repent. They were content with their status. They were content with their perspective on life, their philosophies. They were content with just the way things were, the status quo. And they were too content to repent. Let me pause a minute and say, if ever there was something that's afflicted the church of America today, it's contentment. If we can be just contented showing up, putting a little money in the offering plate, checking off the boxes of whatever's expected for in each particular church of a church member to do, if we can put our trust in, in a baptism that we had, you know, 30, 50, 70 years ago, if we can put our trust in a membership, in an organization, and, and we don't have to do anything more than that, that we can just sit back very contented and be far too content to even entertain the need to repent. And this is part of what John was seeing. They were not repentant. They had not confessed any of their sins. They had not changed at all. They were not genuinely seeking after the truth. And so when he saw them coming and he discerned their purpose, he immediately labeled them, You sack of snakes! What are you doing here? You know, I got to thinking, how might that sermon have sounded in a Baptist church in America. Meaning no disrespect to John, and I may have to apologize when I get to heaven. But maybe it will sound something like this. What brings you slithering in here today? You sons of snakes, why are you here? To get out of the cold? To sit around with your friends? To make yourself feel better than others that you live around? About how faithful and how good you are as compared to others? Are you here to give God that wish list of yours that you call prayer? Don't even start with me about how long your family's been around here. About which pew they bought or which window they put in place. I don't care what you've done or your family's done or how much money you've given. I want to know, what are you doing with your life? Where are you headed? And Don't give me some polite answer either. This is not dress up or pretend time. This is serious, and there are consequences to the way we live and the choices we make. So if you are here to hear a word from God, to change your life and it to be different, to open yourselves to God, then show it. Live it. Let it be seen by the choices you make, the priorities you establish, the actions you take, and the words you speak. But if that's not why you're here, then get out. Crawl back into the hole you came out of. Maybe that's what it would have sounded like today. But it was that kind of pow in your face. John called the religious leaders of the day a brood of vipers. 
that, that word brood, that word brood, it, it, it means the offspring, the children of, the descendants of. You, you're, you're the offspring, the spawn of vipers, echidna. Vipers is a, is a small desert snake, but with a powerful and deadly venom. As a matter of fact, few people ever recovered from a bite of a desert viper. And the thing, one of the things that made them so deadly is when they're laying very, very still, they look just like a dried stick. And, and it would be natural to go and pick it up to add it to your fire. That's exactly what happened to Paul on the island of Malta. It was one of these snakes, a desert viper. Remember, he was gathering wood. And as he was gathering up these dried sticks to be taken and put in the fire, he grabbed a hold of an echidna, a desert viper. And it turned around and nailed him in the hand. And then those who lived on the island, they sat back and said, that's a bad man. God is wreaking justice here. He might have escaped dying out in the shipwreck and in the sea, but now the God of justice is seeing to it that he dies. And so they watched him. But he didn't swell up. And he didn't keel over. He didn't die. And so then they thought, he must be a god. Neither one of those crazy extremes were true. But the fact of the matter is, I want you to see, this was that little deadly snake. This was that desert viper that Paul encountered on the Isle of Malta. And very easily fooling folks, but deadly. This is what he called the religious leaders. A bunch of snakes with a deadly venom. What, what, what was it? that made him so angry? What upset them so much? Calling the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers pointed out two things. The danger of their religious hypocrisy and the fact that it all came from their ultimate father, none other than Satan himself. Later at another time, the Lord Jesus, in his woes to these Pharisees, he too would call them a brood of vipers. And he would specifically point to where that brood came from. You are none other than descendants of your father, Satan himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty harsh criticism for the religious leaders of the day, don't you think? This is how John evaluated them coming out. Why? They had this whole pantheon of things that they did to earn God's approval. And that God was proud of them. And God loved them. And God would accept them into heaven because of all of these good things that they had already done. What would it hurt if we just add one more good thing and we go down here in the water in the Jordan and get baptized too? That'd just be one more feather in our cap. That'd just be one more good thing that we could do to earn our way into heaven. And John was incensed by that. Because that's not what baptism was. It had nothing to do 
with their reason for being there. And as we unfold this in the verses to come, we'll be able to see that with striking clarity. Their venom that was deadly was saying, I can find my way to God on my own. By doing enough good deeds, if I do more good things than bad things in my life, and I'll weigh the scales out more on the good than on the bad, then God is obligated to allow me into heaven when that time comes. That is a modern United States of America, grade A choice, prime theology. And it's as damning now as it was back then. That is not scriptural. And John nailed them for it. Today, those who make faith in Jesus Christ, keeping a list of, of rules and regulations and checking and do this and don't do that, and wear this and don't wear that, and cut your hair this way and, and, and let your dress him be this long or whatever the case may be, that this is what it is that makes you acceptable to God. John would say you're a fool. That's not what makes you acceptable to God. You have bought in to a deadly counterfeit. And then he goes on when he says, Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? That still continues this brood of viper analogy. The farmer, after he had, had harvested all of his grain, and everything was good and dry, which doesn't take long in the Holy Land, he would see which way the wind's blowing. If it's blowing this way, he would start a fire on this side of his field and let the fire come all the way across the field, cleansing the earth and, and, and burning off the chaff, burning off the stalks. Over on this side, you could watch the vipers getting away. They would be fleeing the fire that was coming and finding a place to go hide. So when Paul labeled them a bunch of snakes, he said there's the wrath coming, there's judgment coming, and God is not going to put up with this anymore. And as that fire comes, you think coming and getting baptism is going to give you fire insurance? That you're not going to get burnt up when God's wrath is poured up? You're fooling no one but yourself, John is saying. Who has told you to, to, to flee from this? And especially to flee by receiving baptism by my hand. John would not be party to their hypocrisy and sham. It was the deceitfulness that came right from their true master, Satan. That said, you can put a, a ritual that will get you saved. Now, now, bear with me a minute. I'm going a little long, but please forgive me. There are those in America today who are convinced that being dunked in a baptismal pool or water sprinkled on your head, that that saves you and you don't have to worry about any change of heart or attitude. Okay? Listen, baptism is a precious and powerful symbol. But it does not save you from your sins. It is a symbol of what does. You receiving Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You submitting yourself to His authority in your life. You becoming one of His followers. 
That's what saves you. And the baptism is a picture of that. It's a symbol of that. Can I draw an analogy? I wear a wedding ring. Valeria put this on my finger. And, and, and I, it's precious to me. And it's a powerful symbol. It's a reminder to me of the commitments we've made to one another. And it's a reminder that anybody happens to look out there and see, I'm spoken for, I'm taken, I'm not on the market, I'm not available. But let me tell you something. This wedding ring does not make me married. Okay? Alright, here you go. Not married now, right? Married. Not married, right? Married. That's foolish. If you think being dumped under the water saves you, you're being just as big a fool. Baptism is not the power that saves you from your sins. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, and you receiving that into your heart. That's what saves you. And then baptism gets to be the beautiful picture of that. That you're buried with Him into baptism and raised to walk in His newness of life. But the symbol without the heart change is empty and worthless. And that's what John is saying. You're treating this powerful and beautiful symbol of baptism as if it's nothing more than one more ritual. And I won't have it! Get out of here! Get back in that hole you crawled out of. This is for people whose heart are broken by their sins and their lives are being transformed by the power of God. Let me ask you something. What are you depending on for your soul's salvation? If it's anything less than a current relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you may well have bought a counterfeit. You may have bought a plastic toy that's not going to be able to move you into the kingdom of heaven. It's when your heart is broken for your sins. And out of that brokenness, you come before God asking His forgiveness and cleansing. He does a miraculous work in your life. That's what saves you. And then you get to take a beautiful picture of that for all time and eternity in the baptismal pool. What are you trusting? If you're trusting in anything other than a living relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you in the next few moments to come here and sit on this front row and allow me or Derek, a moment, or Tony, to talk with you and share with you how genuine salvation happens. How you can be cleansed and freed from your sins. And how you can be transformed into a child of God. Maybe you want to join our fellowship. You can come sit on this front row. We'll talk to you about that. Keep our distance and all. It's time to do business with God. Will you pray with me? Father God, We just can't run by some of these verses in our Bibles. You cause us to woe, Selah, 
pause. Think about this. Contemplate this. Lord, if there's anyone here today in the sanctuary or watching by means of media, I pray, Holy Spirit, that if they are trusting in anything other than You, Lord Jesus, for their salvation, that You'll convict their hearts, You'll break their heart of their sins, and You'll bring them to Yourself for Your cleansing and forgiveness, and that You'll come but be the Lord, the boss, the king, the ruler of their lives. All they've got to do is ask. All they've got to do is surrender. So in this moment, whether here or at home, Holy Spirit, work Your miraculous work as only You can. Here in the sanctuary, as people come forward to sit on our front pew and allow us to talk to them about being saved or joining our fellowship or whatever, also, Lord, the altar is open. If anybody wants to just come and worship You on their knees or pray for a friend, Lord, will You give us perfect freedom? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.